Welcome to the High Point Baptist Church Sermon Cast, expository Bible sermons from the preaching and teaching ministry of High Point Baptist Church in Larksville, Pennsylvania, for the glory of God and the proclamation of His Word. We thank you for listening. And now, High Point Baptist Church pastor-teacher, Pastor Matt Tarr. It's good to see all of you here again tonight. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. As you know, uh, if you have our church app, you received a push notification this week reminding you that we are inviting new members into our body uh, later this evening, and that is always a wonderful time for us. One of the most important things that we can do as members is usher in new members into this family, into this local body of Christ, and uh, make our commitment to them publicly known and that we will hold them accountable to the Word of Christ, that we will love them and serve them and build them up as they do to us. And so we look forward to that in just a little while. And the fellowship that we are going to have, of course, we invite all of you to that uh, after the service as well. So uh, we have uh, David Gogler was good enough to, to get a, a whole bunch of treats for us so that we can, you know, indulge our pre Christmas diets uh, and uh, and get ready so that we can avoid the sugar shock perhaps from all the holiday cookies later this season. But for now, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we are in verses 6 through 13 for tonight as we slowly work through this little paragraph. And we said that this series we might call The Bigger You Are, The Harder You Fall. And that is because, of course, in the Corinthian context, they had just built up this this man-centered philosophy of ministry, and arrogantly so, and they were very quickly uh, coming to their own ruin because of their misuse and abuse of their Christian liberties. They didn't, know under, they didn't understand how to use them properly, and not understanding how they use them properly, they used them for their own selfishness, and it was destroying the church, and it was destroying themselves, and they didn't even know it much like of much of today's contemporary evangelicalism. So follow along with me as we uh, remind ourselves where we're at. It's been a little bit while since we are here uh, because of the week that we took off for Thanksgiving. Paul writes, Now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. And of course, this is what we looked at last time in verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. To reacquaint you then with where we are in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, Paul had been dealing with the appropriate use of Christian liberty. 
that is the context. That That is the issue that Paul is trying to address. And I think that we've dealt with that at this point more than adequately. You can remember the main point about that. I'm not going to review it for you except to say that remember how badly arrogance had corrupted the body of Christ, as we had just said. They thought they stood strong. But arrogance and pride always corrupt. It is particularly deceptive. It is particularly dangerous to our own spiritual condition, our sanctification, and to the church. And it tears down the flock of God, and it results in all kinds of factionalism. It breaks the church apart, which we have been seeing since the very opening pages of Paul's letter to the church. And it is dangerous because on a personal level, as well as a corporate one, but it renders you your spiritual weakest while you think you're at your spiritual strongest. I think of Samson, who had been consecrated as a Nazarite from birth, and in spite of his foolishness and prideful heart, the strength of the Lord was with him all his days. He, on multiple occasions, showed disregard for the Word of God until finally, finally he, he disregarded the Word of God in the, in the worst way, married a Philistine woman as his wife. Now, if you remember anything about the context of Samson, Samson was a judge, and the Lord was to use Samson to bring judgment against the Philistines who were oppressing his people Israel. And the reason God allowed the Philistines to chastise Israel was because of Israel's disobedience, but that would not relinquish the Philistines from their own responsibility for being rebellious idolaters. And so Samson was appointed by God and was given supernatural strength in order to bring judgment on them. You remember the account on one occasion in which he even slaughtered 3,000 men with the jawbone of a donkey. I mean, just remarkable strength. But then Samson marries this Philistine woman. He sees her, sees her beauty, falls in love with her, is captivated by her, and he gives her the secret to his strength. And the secret to his strength, of course, was in the Nazarite vow that he was set apart for God's purposes from his birth. And because he was set apart to the Nazarite vow, according to the vow, his hair had never been cut. Never been cut since his birth. Sign of his dedication. And then in Judges 16.20, when the Philistines came upon him, because of course, his wife had tried this on multiple occasions, and Samson uh, told her a, a variety of different things. You can tie me with uh, new bowstrings. You can tie me with uh, new ropes and um, any of that, and, and then uh, my strength will depart from me. She tried those things. It didn't work, and then she pled with him and pled with him and pled with him. Oh, Samson, if you love me, why won't you tell me the secret to your strength? Why won't you tell me the secret to your strength? And she wore him down. And having worn him down, he finally consents. The, the strength, the source of my strength comes from the Lord. He tells her everything we read. He tells her everything that which was on his heart. 
And his wife knew when he did. And so she calls the elders of the Philistines together and says, Samson has come and he has told me everything that is on his heart. I know this time he is telling the truth. Come and we will steal the source of his strength. We'll cut his hair. And Samson isn't any the wiser. She soothes him, strokes him, till he falls asleep with his head on her lap where she cuts his hair And he arises when his wife tells him, Samson, Samson, the Philistines are coming to get you. And he doesn't know his hair is cut, doesn't know the Lord has departed from him. And he's taken captive, his eyes gouged out, and he's made to run a millstone in prison. He had no idea how weak he had become. And so he rose up in the same way that he always had before to afflict the Philistines, and they captured him. And the same was true of the Corinthians. Because of their pride, because of their arrogance, because they had not known how spiritually weak they had become, they had no idea how immature they had also become. They thought they were strong when they were weak. They had a really big and they had a really elaborate ministry. And the maturity of their congregation was defined by them according to the emotion that they could evoke. Having adopted that entertainment-driven Epicurean and Stoic philosophical systems that had widespread popularity in Corinth at the time, these systems that had established what was important to, to gain a following of people, right? And so they integrated that into the body of the church and said, well, this is, this is a thrill. I mean, the people love this. L- look at this. We can provide the same thing the world provides. I mean, this is a project. We've got this. But pay close attention because Paul gives the Corinthians five reasons why they should be nothing short of alarmed. They thought they had it all. They thought they had great maturity. They had all the numbers. They had the blessing of God, and they assumed that the blessing of God meant that they also had His pleasure. They get not just one, not two, but five shots across the bow in verses 6 through 13 to warn this self-acclaimed, spiritually mature church who is actually badly following the footsteps of Israel. This was not a good testimony. This was not the characteristic of a good, mature church. Again, like we said, they had received tremendous blessing. There was fruit, if you will. The validity of that fruit, Paul doesn't address. But one thing was sure, they were not building up a mature flock. They were immature, and they mistook blessing for pleasure. And Israel's own wilderness wanderings, which are where all of these five warnings come from, shows that it might sometimes be in accordance with the sovereign purposes of God that the main purpose of your life is to serve as a warning for others. 
Certainly we don't want that to be the case. What a sad commentary on the history of Israel. What a sad commentary on the condition of the Corinthian church at this point. And that is an important point for us to evaluate, of course, as well. So here you've got the Israelites being held out for the Corinthians as a grim reminder to them of the consequences for overconfidence and complacency. And I'll give you two guesses then what their problem was. The Israelites are held out as a reminder of overconfidence and complacency. Paul wouldn't be motivated to show them this reminder if that wasn't a problem in this great spiritually mature church in Corinth. These who boasted in their theology, boasted in their knowledge of liberty, because they assumed that knowledge of liberty meant spiritual maturity and the exercise of those liberties meant spiritual maturity. But Paul says, you are grossly overconfident and you are complacent, just like Israel, and let him who thinks he stands take heed lest you fall. Paul shows us how arrogance is going to be a real problem when we consider the issue of Christian liberty. Now do keep in mind that liberty is a good thing. We don't want you to misunderstand that. We don't want you to walk away thinking, well, liberty is a liberty is a, a terrible thing, and liberty is not a good thing. I mean, we certainly we have liberties, but we should view those liberties negatively, not so. Not so at all. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul reminds us that liberty comes from God, as every good thing comes from God. Liberty is a good thing. And in verse 13, he even says, You were called to freedom, brethren. You are called to freedom. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. That's the concept that we're going to get to in a minute. But for now, I want to draw your attention to that first part. Because we can never forget that we are called to freedom. We are called to freedom. And the reason is very important which Paul tells us in Galatians, if you flip back to Galatians chapter 2, that is, we can summarize, you should never give up your Christian liberty needlessly because if you do, it'll muddy up the gospel and people are going to associate the gospel with works all of a sudden, they're going to begin to associate Christianity as everything you don't do. And so that's a bad thing. But needlessly is the operative word, isn't it? We have been called to freedom. And because we have been called to freedom, we don't want to give up our Christian liberties needlessly, or or we're going to confuse and muddy up the gospel. But needlessly is the operative word. And what we've learned from Paul 
is that a spiritually mature Christian isn't going to demand the exercise of his liberties, but one who will restrict those liberties for the sake of love. He understands that if if the exercise of his liberties will cause offense, either to his testimony or the testimony of another believer, love requires him to bridle that liberty. But it's important to understand that by the word offense, what we aren't referring to is the emotional nature of the word offense. We're not talking about offense in the emotional sense. In other words, we're not talking about offense uh, that is to say, your liberties are those things which others might be offended by, they are upset by, they're simply things that you don't like. They may be really agitated, in fact, by the exercise of your Christian liberty, and that is not the kind of offense that Paul is actually talking about. Just because I don't like the your exercise of your liberties, that's not the kind of offense that Paul is referring to for which we ought to exercise our Christian liberties. In fact, that's the kind of needless exercise of our or restriction of our uh, Christian liberties that Paul says is going to muddy up the issue of the gospel and the offense that we want to look at is in the legal sense. And so what's the difference? What's the difference? Offense in the legal sense, not the emotional sense. Well, again, offense in the emotional sense means that you just get someone upset by what you've done in the exercise of your liberty. No real biblical justification for why they're upset. They just really don't like what you did and maybe had some real personal reasons for it. They might have had rational reasons for it, but not any real biblical justification for being upset. But in Galatians chapter 2, these Judaizers, they were really upset. Do you remember why? Well, it was because they wanted these Gentile Christians to be circumcised, and they were in a real fit that they weren't. You better believe they were offended in the emotional sense. And Paul says, I'm not going to buy into that. The context, of course, in circumcision, he says in verse 2, it was because of a revelation that I went up and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. So so we are not going to consent, we are not going to bow to their personal preferences to stroke their emotional egos. We won't do that. That muddies up, that messes up the gospel. Paul says, no way are we going to do that. Verse 4, But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty which we have in Jesus Christ in order to bring us into bondage. Bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour 
Not for one minute did we bow and subject him to them. Now, they didn't really measure time by minutes back then, not in a meaningful sense anyway. They measured time by the hour. The hour was basically considered the smallest meaningful measurement of time that they would use. So kind of like we would say, not for a single minute, they would say not for an hour. We say not for one single minute. And what we mean by that, not by the smaller measurement of uh, unit of time that we meaningfully use. You know, of course we can break a minute down into seconds and milliseconds and so forth, right? But for the, the, in a meaningful sense, we would say not for a single minute, we will not consent. They would say not for a single hour, we would not yield in subjection to them. And look what Paul says next. He says, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. So the needless restriction of your liberty messes up the gospel. However, if for the sake of love we restrict our liberties because they offend someone in the legal sense, we preserve the gospel. Offense in the legal sense refers to something criminal. Offense in the legal sense refers to something illegal. So if your action causes someone else to sin, you better not then do it. If it draws and entices someone else to sin, if it causes another believer to stumble, you better restrict your Christian liberty. And that doesn't muddy up the gospel. It clarifies it. Because then you act in love and you act in selflessness. That is in direct contradiction to the flaunting and the mass demand to exercise our right for the exercise of our Christian liberties in contemporary Christianity. And it was the exact opposite of the Corinthians' demand for the exercise of their rights to practice their Christian liberties too. Paul gets really personal in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 because before you're too confident that you're not going to offend anybody, you should also be concerned that you're not going to offend yourself. Again, we're talking in a legal sense. So we might say, well, see, uh, nobody's going to know because nobody's going to see this. I mean, uh, what difference does that make? Or maybe I'm with a, a buddy of mine or whatever the case may be, and so it is my liberty. It's going to be restricted to myself and this other person or maybe even a group of people, and I know that this is not going to draw anybody into sin. And Paul says, be careful lest you not take yourself into account. Remember how in Romans 8.3, Paul talked about the weakness of our own human flesh? So, be careful. Be careful that you're not going to entice yourself to sin. And the testimony of the Israelites was the exercise of their liberties gone wrong because of the weakness of their human flesh, which resulted, first of all, in idolatry. So, the first exhortation to the Corinthians who were arrogantly flaunting their liberty was, do not be idolaters. Verse 7, 
do not be idolaters. As some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. The Israelites had just been set free by God from bondage and slavery in Egypt, and they turned around and flaunted that freedom and built up for themselves idols. And we talked about last time the problem with idolatry and how we are far more given to idolatry than we would ever admit. But what is obvious from Exodus chapter 32, which is the account that Paul is referencing in verse 7, when Israel created a golden calf to worship, is that we have too narrow a definition of idolatry. I mean, of course we would say, well, idolatry is more than uh, bowing down to some kind of crafted image. I mean, we don't really do that in America, do we? Well, I mean, quite frankly, many do. Many do. There are many in the Roman Catholic Church that bow down and worship and pray their Hail Marys and on and on it goes praying to the apostles, worshiping the apostles. Many in Buddhism and Hinduism, and uh, they bow down and worship these crafted, fashioned images of gold and silver and wood and clay and iron and everything else. But um, as, as far as we are concerned, as far as uh, Christianity is concerned, we're not, we don't really see that kind of idol worship. And and so we'll, we'll very quickly say, but that's not all idolatry is. We get that. We get that. Idolatry is esteeming anything in the place of God, anything, putting anything in a higher priority than, than, than is God. Anything we worship other than God or before God is idolatry. And so... You know, we might assess our own hearts and, and say, well, do I esteem my monetary security more than generosity in the church? Do I, do I esteem my American dream more than my uh, service to the Lord in His church? Will I prioritize my family, my children, before I prioritize my Lord Jesus Christ, and so on and so forth? And so we, we do that assessment. But what we also learn from Exodus chapter 32 is that idolatry is, is all, not just the wrong object in worship, but also just wrong worship of the true God. Idolatry is wrong worship, false worship of the true God. Worship that dishonors God or the kind of worship that God hasn't ordained, or the kind of worship that God doesn't want. But you remember last time we said that it wasn't that Aaron fashioned a golden calf as an alternative God to the God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. In Exodus chapter 32, Aaron fashions a golden calf after the people say, Make us Elohim. They want a representation of God to worship. They want to worship God in the way that they see in the Egyptians worship their gods. 
Moses is gone. We don't know what happened to him. I mean, Moses was our representation of God. Now we've got nothing. Make us then a representation of God so we can worship in the, him the way we want. Make us Elohim, and Aaron does. And he says, this is Elohim who brought you out of the land of Egypt. This is that God. Here's your representation of him. Worship him. And so that's what Aaron does. And what that tells us, if we fast forward to the church in Corinth and fast forward from the church in Corinth to the church in the 21st century, is that, yes, by all means, idolatry is always an issue. But worship that God doesn't want is also idolatry. And the context that provoked the Corinthians to remember that was this man-centered, entertainment-driven kind of philosophy that they had bought into, this worship that they wanted, and that's what they were concerned about. My music, my service, my style, my kind of preaching, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, and Christ. All of these figures who communicated the same message, the same gospel, yet they had put a dichotomy between them because of the styles that they represented. They became a personality-driven cult because they had become so entertainment and self-centered. So you see how your philosophy of ministry is so very important then, that you get it right. Because if you're not worshiping the right way, you're ultimately only worshiping yourselves. It's all about you again. The Corinthians bought into idolatry because of their self-centered worship. And the kind of horrible perversion that leads to, let me tell you, Remember Exodus 32:25. Moses looked down and saw that the people were out of control. They were just running wild all over the place. And the King James Version actually translates that as naked. Moses looked down and saw that the people were naked. Because that's what they were. It is the Hebrew word for out of control, for running wild. They were running around all over the place in this wild sex orgy. It was absolutely vile, reprehensible, and wicked. False worship. False worship doesn't care about any kind of impurity. If worship at its very core is impure, then why should your life be pure? If you are not concerned that worship at its very core is pure. 
Why should you be concerned? Why would I believe that you are concerned that your life is pure? If you're not concerned that corporate worship here is worship that God wants, why would I believe that your life is a life that is living in a way that God wants? Isn't that the great evangelical contradiction? We have a Christianity that couldn't care less whether its corporate worship is really pure. And then it's so quick to remind you that, hey, worship isn't just singing. It's not just showing up to church. It's not just praying. It's not just giving. It's, it's not just everything that we do in the context of the corporate assembly. Worship is honoring God in everything you do. That's true. But then you set up a hypocritical standard when you take this anything goes kind of corporate worship and then you don't expect that the people are going to have an anything goes kind of Christian living? You don't think they're going to have a wrong understanding of their Christian liberties? Well, just because the Bible doesn't say that we can't have, you know, race cars and dancers coming down the aisles and all kinds of distracting silliness, that, uh, that means that we have the liberty, we can do that. That is going to be honoring to Christ. And our entertainment is going to be honoring to Christ and being consumed and, and motivated by uh, what pleases us is going to be honoring to Christ. And so we have this lowest common denominator kind of Christianity and this man-centered kind of Christianity, and then we expect people to walk away and not have that same kind of attitude when it comes to their Christian liberties. Well, just because God didn't say it, well, then I can do whatever I want. Complete freedom, but gross discernment. They've been taught here that the worship of God is not esteemed The worship of God is not a priority. God's pleasure is of secondary importance. Your pleasure is of primary importance. And so therefore, when I exercise my liberties in the context of my life that I live for God, God's pleasure is a secondary priority to my own. Hypocritical standard. doesn't take a whole lot of thought to see that. And God sees it. And I'll tell you, maybe that's why we have a sin-ridden pandemic in the church that we do. We have such a low view of God that begins with our corporate life and ends with our private life. Worship in the church, primarily for my pleasure, secondarily for God's pleasure. Worship in my life, primarily for my pleasure, secondarily for God's pleasure. Such a low view of God that begins with our corporate life and ends with our private life. And for the Israelites, God was so displeased that he struck down 3,000 men. And before you think, well, that's not too bad. I mean, there were 2 million 
of the Israelites after all, and he struck down only 3,000. So, you know, the majority of them got away with it. Well, keep in mind that the rest of the two million would die too. Over the next 40 years, that whole wilderness would be littered with corpses. The corpses of the Israelites who would die in the wilderness, never to set foot in the promised land. They received God's judgment? You bet they did. Did they get away with their impure worship? No way. Every single one of them over the next 40 years died in the wilderness. Idolatry amounts to nothing more than a mockery of God. It is a low view of God. And that is going to affect your discernment. That's going to affect your moral compass. That's going to affect the way you exercise your Christian liberties. And the truth is, when you've trained yourself to worship in whatever way you want, and God takes the back seat, you're also training yourself to live in whatever way you want, and God takes the back seat there too. Then all of a sudden, when your liberty gets you in a compromising situation, it makes all the easier to reason, well, this isn't really a big deal. Maybe God will care, maybe he won't care that much. I don't think he cares that much, and then he really doesn't care that much because I got away with it. And that leads us to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 8. Paul exhorts us, secondly, I know you were wondering when we would get there, but I had to set that up because these are so related together. The issue of idolatry and immorality. The, the issue of idolatry and bad Christian living. Impure worship in the way you live. Nor let us act immorally. So you see how these things are related? The, the word there is fornication, to use the antiquated term. Sexual immor- immorality, porneo. Extramarital sex, adultery, homosexuality. Extramarital sexual activity. Any kind of sexual expression or activity that is unsanctioned by God. That's what porneo would refer to. At this point, you, you don't think it's, it's that big a deal? Especially because our world has so trivialized sex and popularized sex and made sex into a mass industry. Just like in corn. So the Corinthians didn't think it was that big of a deal. And time and again, we keep seeing pastors being exposed for sexual impropriety, husbands being exposed for sexual impropriety, wives being exposed for sexual impropriety, and so much so that it's been said, you can't really expect purity in the marriage bed anymore. Youth even being exposed for sexual impropriety. And for the expectation of purity among our youth, well, that is foregone. That that is just forever gone from this age. And you're just setting yourself up for disappointment between all the sexual activity that goes on before marriage and all the sexual activity that goes on during marriage. And, and what 
does God really think about that in spite of all its commonality? Surely, he doesn't really care that much, right? Just like he doesn't really care that much about the purity of our worship. Well, in Numbers chapter 25, the Israelites got messing around with the Moabites. They committed harlotry with the daughters of Moab in verse 1. And then we read in verse 2 of Numbers chapter 25, Then they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. Isn't that interesting? So in Israel, idolatry led to sexual immorality. And then, sexual immorality led to idolatry. It's interesting how those two always seem to be related. So the Lord had judges of Israel slay 24,000 Israelites who participated in that. Apparently, their consciences had become so seared to the issue that, that one man... Because it had become so widely accepted as the norm, even, <clears throat> even took a Midianite woman right down in the sight of Moses and all the congregation of Israel right in public. This, this gross perversion of God's design. Just widely accepted as the norm, just like premarital sex or extramarital marital sex or any other kind of fornication would be today just the norm, and so they might as well just do it right out in public. They were so forward about it. So, verse 7, when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he arose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand. And he went after the men of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through the man of Israel, and the woman, through the body. So the plague on the sons of Israel was checked. Now, just a quick comment. Paul says in in chapter 10, verse 8, that 23,000 fell in one day. And in Numbers, we read that uh, 24,000 died in judgment. So that's not particularly complicated. Evidently, a thousand of them lived past sundown. When the Jews would consider the day to have begun anew, and so many of them were killed, they were struck down with a sword, but didn't die until the next day. Evidently, it would probably be the way that we can easily explain that. And total, 24,000. 23,000, Paul says, in one day. And let me ask you, do you think it's any wonder that after addressing the Corinthians' worship that he tells them to flee sexual immorality, to worship again, and to flee sexual immorality again? But don't worry about us, Paul. Our methods won't change the message. Meanwhile, Paul says they stripped the gospel of its saving power. Don't worry about us, Paul. Our liberties won't change our purity. Meanwhile, you have a guy over here sleeping with his father's wife. 
No issue there. And we want to talk about how spiritually mature we are. When in reality, they were so spiritually immature that they were quickly disqualifying themselves from useful service. They were soon to be disqualified from the prize. They were so undisciplined and careless, they're out of the race. And, and that's what we're going to learn next time, is how all of this ultimately tests God. But you might be relieved that we will, in fact, save that for next time. It's 7 o'clock, and... We want to be sure to leave adequate time for our fellowship. So we're going to pick up in verses 9 and 10. And we have several new individuals who understand the importance of worship, corporate worship tonight. And they want to join us in corporate worship as part of this body here at High Point. They understand the importance of worshiping God the right way and the importance of the church in holding one another accountable to worshiping God the right way in our corporate body and the individual lives that we live. It's encouraging to have them join us, even all sat in the same row to make this really easy work for us tonight. And uh, and they worked hard this afternoon. We were here throughout the day. They're maybe a little bit weary at this point. But it was a wonderful, fruitful time that we had learning about the church and how the Lord has called each of us to serve the church. And I'll go ahead and start from my right, your left. First, we have Allison, Allison Newfeld. You can come on up, stand right up here, right in front of me. Actually, you can stand just over here uh, so that by the time we get to the middle, the middle is right here in front of me, or the asymmetry is going to drive me crazy. Then we have Megan McClintock, soon to be Megan Hinkle. And then we have Jared Hinkle from whom Megan will take her name, by the way. And then Elon Kaplan. Each of these New members have declared their commitment to our Lord Jesus Christ, that they have been saved by grace through faith, and that not of themselves it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Each of them have represented that, uh, that new life that they have in Jesus Christ in baptism. And so now they want to serve this church, they want to love this church, they want you to love them too and hold them accountable to the Word. And if you can all turn and face me, I told you this is simple, but we will answer in the affirmative, I will. Will you be diligent to exercise self-control so that your lifestyle exhibits both true Christian love and personal holiness? Okay, Jared, I didn't hear you. Will you faithfully assemble with this body of believers, striving to maintain unity and doing all you can to stimulate love and good deeds in others as you seek to exercise your spiritual gifts in faithful service? That's better. There we go. 
Will you consistently contribute as a good steward of God's blessing such time, talent, and resources in the measure that God prospers you so that our local church and worldwide ministry of spreading the gospel may continue? Will you teach biblical truth to your family and acquaintances, friends, as God gives you opportunity with a desire to see them come to trust the Jesus Christ whom you know and be saved? Will you always be willing to both give and receive admonition and instruction with meekness and in love? And will you commit to praying for the ministry here in our church, your brothers and sisters in Christ, the elders, the pastors and deacons in our church, and for the lost who are in need of a Savior? Now you can go ahead and turn our congregation. And those of you who are members here with us tonight, if you can go ahead and stand, members of High Point Baptist Church, and I will ask you, now will you as our congregation and as members of High Point Baptist Church, by the aid of the Holy Spirit, seek to love, to encourage, to teach, to admonish, to comfort, exhort, and to hold accountable these new members of our body and embrace them into your lives with a sincere desire to see them grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I like the confidence, Jared. Amen. Let's pray for these individuals and pray for the fellowship that we are to have, and then you'll be dismissed. Precious Father, thank you for what a wonderful evening that we have had. We thank you for what a full and rich day of worship. Uh, Starting this morning, looking at what you have said regarding yourself and your own glory, and then through the afternoon, what you have taught us with regard to our commitment to the body of Christ, to your church, and, and the gifts that you have given to us to serve your church and the accountability that is to be found in it. And then once again tonight, the priority of worshiping you right and living holy lives before you. And we thank you for each and every one of these individuals that, are, that is here with us tonight, that is committing their, uh, their membership in this church as, as a sign of their love for you and a commitment here to this body in order that they might serve you faithfully, be good stewards of the gifts that you have given to them, and so that they might be held accountable, they might be pure. And, uh, and thank you for this congregation who loves the same. We pray that you will be glorified still in the fellowship that we have tonight. And let us enjoy each other's company. We pray all of these things in your Son's name. Amen. You've been listening to the expository Bible teaching of our pastor-teacher, Pastor Matt Tarr, on the High Point Baptist Church Sermon Cast. And we pray you have been blessed by what you've heard. If you have any questions about the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, or if you would like to speak with someone concerning salvation through faith, please reach out to us right away. It would be a great joy and blessing to minister to you. Contact information can be found on our website. If you have any additional questions or comments regarding this sermon, would like to know more about our church, or would like to submit a prayer request, just visit us online at highpointbaptist.church. Additional sermons can be found on the SermonCast page of our website and may be downloaded or streamed free of charge. Our website again is highpointbaptist.church. Thank you again for listening. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Copyright 2018, High Point Baptist Church, All Rights Reserved.